2: Man, you told them so, didn't you? Yeah, I'm feeling really, really,
3: really smug right now. What did you tell them? I said that the Bank of England probably won't raise interest rates tomorrow. I got the right side of the heads or tails on, just be
2: clear. Yesterday, you said the Bank of England wouldn't <laughs> yes. raise interest rates tomorrow, and tomorrow yes. is today. Yes. 12.08. We're exactly. just after the decision. Uh, Reader, sorry to disappoint you, but we do record this bit a day before you hear it. Not readers, listeners in this case. And John, why did you think that? And obviously, they read your stuff. So,
3: oh, but they already know. Uh, Is a kind of gut thing? So the um, the economy has been showing some glimmerings of slowing down a bit, um, despite the fact the Bank of England's kind of embarrassed about not being good at calling inflation the the so path of least resistance. Be. Yeah, exactly. But the path of least resistance was for holding mm. this uh, month. I thought. Do you
2: think they might have looked at the money supply numbers?
3: Hmm. Hmm. Probably not. <laughs> I, know
2: I think that's unfair of you. I think, you know, even Bank of England governors are capable of learning. And they've been told and told and told over the last year or so, for God's sake, why don't you just look at the money supply numbers? Because there is a connection between money supply and yep. inflation. If you increase the money supply massively, you'll probably get inflation. And when money supply t- starts to turn down, you will probably see inflation fall. That's something that has held for quite a long time with with gaps. Obviously, it doesn't always work, but mostly it's a, it's a pretty good Indicator.
3: Yeah, so that's true. And to be fair, I mean, Mervyn King, who obviously actually, boys worked at the Bank of England for a little while. I
2: did, didn't he? He yeah. might know something about this stuff. <laughs> yeah.
3: So I mean, for all the accusations, the group think he clearly actually thinks in the completely opposite direction from mm. the current law. Mm. Um, and so I said, no, you're you're right. He's, the, the criticism has probably stung, um, and given but he's mm, yeah. But I mean, then you get you know Ben Bernanke coming in. to check their... They're working, and uh, I'm not entirely sure that Ben is a massive kind of fan of money support. I reckon they'll come stuff. to
2: you soon and ask you to go in and check they're working.
3: I do hope so.
2: So do I. I hope they pay you an offer as well. i give you one of those defined Define- benefit pensions. Mm, that's one of those for. ones. RPI linked. <laughs> RPI, yes. <sighs> the we should to, do that why together? do they even want Let's go in together. To come down? Bank of England will come in together. We'll check any old model you <laughs> like, but we can tell you in advance. They're all wrong. Right. <laughs> what does this mean, John though? Listen, we, we think, or I think, and I think you think as well, yeah. that interest rates they're not going to go down in a hurry. We're trying what? to get a little bit of back to the old normal. We're trying to get to a point where interest rates are higher than inflation and uh...
3: Well, yeah, the higher than inflation and well well, usually what happens is that wages are a bit higher than inflation and in the mm-hmm. Bank of England rate. Certainly before two thousand and eight, um, was always higher than inflation. Yeah. So you get real wage rises and also your savings, but uh, getting paid real well, interest. this makes rates sense. As well. I mean, this is,
2: yeah. this, is, this is this is a, a real economy, mm. is when you can put your money in the bank and you can get a, a, a small real return on it.
3: Yeah, and I mean th- that's it's because we've grown used to this. Oh, sorry, I haven't grown used to I it. anyone the young people. Yeah, exactly. Anyone under the age of about forty-ish has got used to this long period where that has been completely the opposite way mm. around. Mm. Um, but you know, the long-term average, I think, the last time I checked, since the Second World War was for the base rate to be kicking about uh, 5%. Mm-hmm.
2: And for um, mortgage rates, yeah. by the way, to always kick around 2 percentage points above the rate of interest.
3: Well, yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, I, I do think that, that this particular, at the moment, because the, the competition between banks is quite high and there aren't many transactions being written, you're probably actually getting a pretty good mortgage deal in terms of the typical spread over the base rate um, over a, a longer period of time. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, if I if I was needing to kind of buy a house or refinance a house just now, I wouldn't make a big bet on rates going much lower than they currently are, because mm-hmm. you're already sort of seeing, um, you know, I think I'm pretty sure you can lock in a five year deal at below the base rate at the moment. Basically, don't bet on rates going lower. Yeah, but, but also remember,
2: just to be clear that we haven't we saw a, a, a lower than expected rate of inflation this week, but inflation is still really yeah. high. And the target is two percent. We're still well over six percent. And apart from anything else, if you want to be honest about inflation, or if the Bank of England wants to be honest about it—I mean, there's a big if there—but you know, let's say they do want to be honest about it, you really should. You really should. If you're being, if you're doing this stuff properly, you should get inflation down below two percent. And you should keep it there for a considerable amount of time to even things out to a long-term average of 2%. And that's quite important. You know, we've had 8%, 9%, 10% for a while now. So that means we really need to be knocking around 1% for like a decade. I mean, maybe To be you... honest, straightforward, and to compensate people we were for that doing... higher lump of inflation.
3: Yeah, I'd need, I mean, maybe you might have done the numbers on this, but we did have a lot of sub-2% sub 1% years during the post 2008 era because actually that was one argument it wasn't for raising the average if I mean that was I mean, that was you kind of knew the turning point was coming because the point at which the Fed said "Actually, maybe it's okay if we let inflation go up for a bit longer and be higher than usual um, because that would be a fairer way to do it and that was literally 2020 I think wasn't it when they actually were coming to the turning point and they very quickly reversed that. That was within a couple of months, they said. Oh, "Actually, no, I'm that wasn't only, such a good I'm only idea.
2: I'm vaguely thinking of the 70s, <laughs> but just to be clear, I do not remember personally. Um, when <laughs> they kept getting inflation down again, but not quite far enough. And then off it went again. So you know, it wasn't ever quite killed.
0: See, And see, I'm I think...
2: worried that we might do that this time.
3: Yeah, I think that is a really interesting point because I, I don't... Uh, No, I mean, history does suggest, and history across various places, not just the 1970s, suggests that once inflation has got as high as it got this time round, it doesn't easily come back to target. Um, And I do think if you look at oil, oil's kind of, it's not far off $100 a barrel again. So it's not, certainly, I mean, next year could get kind of messy again.
2: Okay, you heard it here first. And remember that uh, (laughs) John was right on interest rates, what else might he be right on? Welcome to Maren Talks Money, the podcast in which the people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Meron Somerset-Webb. This week, we ask the fraught question, is Brexit really to blame for every single one of the UK's problems? Robert Colville, director of the Centre for Policy Studies and economist Julian Jessup join me to discuss.
0: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Julian, Robert, thank you both very much for joining us today. Thank you. So we just want to talk today about how Brexit has unfolded so far. There's a lot of talk about Brexit this, Brexit that, it caused this, it's responsible for that, it's all about this, etc. And I'm looking at a tweet from a well-known Remainer, after the news that civil servants were in tears after the Brexit vote and the Foreign Office was in a state of mourning, which sounds terrible, right? And a Remainer wrote, above that, anyone who knew what it meant for people's livelihoods, business, families, freedoms and rights was distressed. Anyone who understood and cared knew that 17.4 million people had mostly unwittingly voted to harm themselves and worse, to harm others. Now, until quite recently, you could point at all sorts of things and say, "Look, you know, we're doing worse than the rest of Europe, in this area, or in that area, GDP, inflation, etc. And that's because of Brexit. Uh, now those numbers don't look quite so bad. in fact, they look perfectly reasonable compared to the rest of Europe. So the question that I want to ask both of you for starters, is it the case that in fact Brexit has been verging on irrelevant for the UK economy? Certainly, significantly less relevant than most people think. Julian.
4: I think that's probably the right way to look at it. I think, first of all, it's worth saying, though, that it a bit odd to say that Brexit has done no harm to the UK economy. After all, we have you know, significantly increased barriers to trade with our, our biggest single partner. We've introduced sort of new obstacles to the, the free movement of, of people. We've increased uncertainty in the British economy, which has undoubtedly held back some investment and meant that there's been sort of additional risk premium on British assets for, for foreign investors. So. I think it'd be weird to say there's been no impact. Um, Against that, though, I think the impact has clearly been a lot less than many people feared at the time of the referendum and and onwards. And actually, it continues to be a lot less than many people claim. So there are all sorts of big numbers flying around. The economy is 4% smaller or or 6% smaller than it would otherwise have been. But there's simply no real hard evidence to support that or, or some of the scare stories about the impact on, on inflation or trade or, or the labour market.
2: Well, if you look at that, business of 4% or 6% or whatever smaller than it might have been. I mean, we know how difficult forecasting GDP is. So who could possibly know where it might have been in, in the first place? Let's talk about where we know it's had a negative impact first, shall we? you've got immigration. But of course, we haven't seen any fall off in immigration. It's just a different kind of immigration, right? And some may say that it's a better kind of immigration because they're using a point system to allow higher skilled people into the country rather than consistently relying on low cost labour is much better for productivity.
4: So immigration is a really interesting place to start, because actually, a lot of people I know who are quite sceptical of Brexit, actually regard our sort of post-Brexit migration regime as a relative success. So we have, as you suggested, reduced our dependency on on cheap labour from Europe and actually made it easier for us to bring in more highly skilled labour from the rest of the world. And if you, if you look at the aggregate numbers, then you have record net migration over the last year or so, it's a bit hard to say that Brexit is a major factor behind the labour shortages that we are facing. That said, it undoubtedly has caused some problems in some sectors. It's very hard for you know, the hospitality industry, for example, you know, swiftly to switch from one type of, of worker to another. And there have been some quite big adjustment costs in, in other areas as well. But overall, I would argue that this, this is a good example of something that perhaps shouldn't have worked in theory, but does seem to have worked in practice, which is that you know, real wages have risen or at least not fallen by as much as they would otherwise have done, that is forcing companies to to rethink how they use labour. And it's probably one factor contributing to some slightly better news on investment recently. So I I think I'd actually regard the sort of post-Brexit migration policy as a success rather than a failure. Okay,
2: you're not doing very well on finding the negatives, Julia. Robert, what about you? you? Can you find a genuine negative for us?
5: Well, I think there's obviously been a a terms of trade shock for the UK economy. As Julian said, we've imposed friction on trade with the EU, and we haven't really done much of the wonderful super diverging that was promised that would create massive growth opportunities elsewhere. I I think the the, the summary is at the moment, we have a, a sort of poor photocopy of EU membership, as opposed to something which looks genuinely distinct. But that's partly because building something generally distinct was always going to be the work of many years and divergence was always going to happen gradually not just as we decided to do stuff but as the eu decided to do stuff i should say up front here by the way that i am a remainer i did vote for remain but reached the apparently novel position that on the 24th of june that you know that the, the people's vote should be respected and delivered and it would be much worse for democracy if we didn't deliver on that verdict than then if we just decided that the idiot saw some numbers on a bus and got all confused, bless their dear hearts. Um, I mean, I think what's, what's sort of happening is that in exactly the same way as we blamed Brussels for everything before Brexit, uh, people are blaming Brexit for everything after Brexit. I mean, on immigration, for example... Um, it's certainly true that there's a change when the new arrangements come in. But what sends all the people from Europe home is the pandemic. That's, what, that's the, you know, the huge great thing that happens. Likewise, the reason we start then in recruiting health service workers en masse from other countries is the pandemic and the strains on the health service. I mean, effectively, the, the sort of totemic immigrant switches from being the, the Polish barista or Polish plumber to being an Indian or Filipino healthcare care or, or social care worker. And that's really kept the NHS afloat.
4: Just to to echo that, if if you look at other countries, so Germany, for example, is in a very similar boat when it comes to labour shortages, uh, and part of that is that a large number of you know, migrant workers went home during COVID, often to, to countries like Poland that are now doing relatively well, and they simply not come back. Now, of course, Germany is still a member of the European Union, but it's got you know pretty much the same problem in the in the labor market. Um, Other countries you can look at in Europe, like the Netherlands, for example, um, their core inflation rate, so that's inflation excluding food and energy, is is proving just as sticky as ours um, for for similar reasons. Again, nothing to do with, with Brexit because of course, the Netherlands is still a member of the European Union, but they're also facing labour shortages, um, the legacy of high energy costs being passed through into all sorts of other bills um, and a, and a t- tight labour market. So. But not only are we not an outlier in terms of headline GDP, so the overall size of the economy, uh, but also if you look at individual things like the tightness of the labour market or what's happening to inflation, there are plenty of countries in Europe in exactly the same position that we are.
5: I I would add, there are obviously individual companies which have had many logistical difficulties in importing or exporting products from the EU, that their life has become unnecessarily complicated and might become even more complicated if we were to impose the full range of protections agreed for food, for example. Likewise, a new HGV drive. There's just all kinds of reasons why it becomes less attractive to drive a lorry into the UK if you've got these extra barriers than to sort of keep it circulating within the the European mainland. But the the tendency to blame literally everything on Brexit is, I think it obscures both the the, you know, the massive events that have happened recently, the pandemic and the cost of living crisis, but I think also crucially, it attracts our attention from the the long running weaknesses of the UK economy. All of the things that people like us have been shouting about at the think tank I, I work in, or or, or Julian likewise, are scandalously bad performance on productivity and real wages for a decade or more. Our, our, you know, our utter failure to invest enough as an economy, both in, you know on, on the public and the private side. Like those are really really big issues which long predate Brexit.
2: So the British economy can be completely rubbish even without Brexit <laughs> Indeed. being the point.
4: Well, I, th- I th- actually, that's right. I think Brexit was never a, you know, a magic wand. Um, it created opportunities, but it's then up to the government to, to take those opportunities. And um, there are plenty of examples there where the government seems to be moving only slowly, if at all.
2: You're absolutely right. It's a good point to make that we see the negatives not being particularly serious, obviously there, but not so much as to hamper the UK economy, but all the positives that people who were pro-Brexit before the vote were hoping for all the policies they thought might arrive. They're just not coming.
4: I think that's right. I don't think it's enough for somebody who supported Brexit. By the way, I did vote to leave the EU in in 2016. I don't think it's enough for people like me to say, oh, well, the damage hasn't been as bad as some people feared. I think you need to show some tangible benefits. And those clearly have been slow to come. And I'm very sympathetic, as Robert said, that there are lots of smaller businesses and, you know, individuals and musicians, for example, whose life has become a lot more difficult as a result of, of leaving the EU. I wouldn't want to Uh, dismiss those problems. So I I think we do need to show some tangible benefits sooner rather than later. And there are a few things I can point to. I I think the new trade deals that are being done are an important step in the right direction. We're moving faster than the EU is on other things. For example, reform of um, agricultural policies, reform of some of the regulations holding back the financial services sector. So there are some things that we can point to, but I think things need to get a lot better in the next few years before... Those of us who did vote to leave the EU can really say that things are heading in the right direction.
2: we yeah, need the government to do something. Is that how you see it, Robert?
5: I, I think so, but I, I don't think you can underestimate the um, the level of well European dysfunction. I mean, I think in in the macro picture, the the the, the, the extraordinary gap is between a, a American growth and European stagnation. And obviously, um, the fact that they didn't depend on Vladimir Putin uh, selling them gas is, uh, has been a sort of contributing player in that. But it genuinely seems, you know, if you look at where the big companies are being created, where the growth is being created, where manufacturing is going, where investment is going, like the fact that we're struggling on those things is not a uniquely British phenomenon. We are, <laughs> despite Brexit, we are a European economy and we look pretty much like many of the other European economies Um and I think, that, I think that's a really important issue to address. It may be, it, it hopefully could be, that Brexit gives us the opportunity to do more things to, to galvanise that. I think one of the startling things about Brexit is we've just all completely lost interest in what Europe is doing and are now completely underreporting pretty much anything that's happening in, in Brussels, which I think is, is really interesting. But, you know, for example, on digital services uh, and technology, you know, our legislation is bad, their legislation looks worse.
2: So what do you put the good, big gap between growth in the US and growth in, in European economies and in the UK down
5: to? Um, I mean, I think um, there's all sorts of things. I, mean, I know I mean, it's a US... long
2: list. Pull out a couple.
5: <laughs> yeah, um, the US is a huge market. I think um, local competition is a really important and um, a completely underplayed part of this. You, you, what you see in the States is a huge shift in growth from basically the places where you pay lots of tax and you can't build houses uh, to the places where you can build houses and you don't pay much tax. Companies are fleeing New York for Miami, they're fleeing California for Texas, and the Sunbelt states are doing in- incredibly well. We don't, in we Britain don't have that dynamic of internal competition at all. Well, we uh, could, also, of course, uh, if Scotland uh, prices, cut tax rates. Obviously.
2: Um, we well, could have internal competition. Cut. If Scotland could cut them and not keep putting them up, then uh, you know British companies might flee to Edinburgh and Glasgow.
5: Well, the, the case for the union would, would be proved.
2: I suppose so. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. What was your second point?
5: Energy, energy costs, right? I mean, um, the, the the shale revolution has absolutely slashed the cost of energy in the US. It's made America an energy exporter, which is extraordinary. And as, as the, the cost of solar power is tumbling by the minute, it, it seems. And um, guess guess where they're building solar panels? It's in Texas.
2: Well, and where they have a lot of sun. Yeah. So the price of energy in the UK is going to continue to co- go up, and that's going to hamper us long term, isn't it?
5: Unless we start building an awful lot more uh, generating capacity than we, we have them to date, then yes.
2: Mm. Julian, what do you think you see as the big problems in the UK that have nothing to do with Brexit?
4: Well, I think actually the comparison of the US is a great starting point. Robert's already touched on some key points. So the greater flexibility, the easier to move around in the US, partly due to the fact that it's relatively easy to build new homes and, and factories compared to over here. The, the high level of energy costs... Admittedly, I think some of the recent growth in the US has been flattered by a fiscal boom that is not sustainable, a big increase in in government spending, a lot of which I think will turn out to be wasteful. And in the meantime, it's actually starting to worry a few people in the financial market. So even though the US has the enormous advantage of still issuing the world's major reserve currency, the, the dollar, its credit rating has been downgraded recently by at least one of the major rating agencies. So The sort of spending boom from the government may not be sustainable, but the underlying fundamentals of the economy are are still relatively sound. Um, Us compared to the rest of Europe, um, I mean, there are a few additional things that I think are going wrong. One obviously is the direction of tax in the UK. It's true that our level of tax isn't particularly high compared to other countries, but the big difference is the extent to which we've increased it over the last few years. Uh, and that's most obvious in the case of corporation tax. So raising our main rate of corporation tax from 19% to, to 25% at a time when our major competitors in Europe, uh, notably France and Germany, are actually looking to lower the burden of, of taxation on their companies. I think that's one obvious problem. Productivity is a, clearly a big problem in the UK, not least in the public sector, In the not talked about enough. We've had very little growth in public sector productivity for decades. Uh, In the private sector, productivity has only really been a problem since the global financial crisis. But going back over decades, public sector productivity has been pretty much flat.
2: Why why is Um, that? Let's go back to that briefly. Why is it that public sector productivity is so poor? We might all have our own answers, but what's your answer?
4: I I hate to pick on the NHS. sounds like a broken record, but I mean, the NHS is the, the biggest single part of our of our public sector one of the biggest parts of the economy overall and it's very hard for state monopoly to to improve um, productivity because there isn't enough internal competition let alone competition with the private sector so i think you need to look at the nhs and myself and others of course have been advocating looking at best practice in the rest of europe and in asia which typically involves more private sector involvement both in terms of finance and, and provision. so the nhs would be an obvious place to to start. But inevitably, the, the public sector is not subject to the same sort of competitive and, and market pressures as the private sector is. So there, there's a problem there. I think partly also, you, you could make a reasonable argument that we haven't been investing enough in infrastructure, some of which I think always has to be provided by the government. In general, of course, I, I think the private sector can do these things better. But even as a free marketeer, i recognize there are some sort of public good aspects here or some very large projects that only really the, the the private the public sector can afford to do at a reasonable cost so i think underinvestment is is a factor and
2: that's true at the corporate level as well right I and mean, it's not just the, the public sector that is underinvested companies have massively underinvested too
4: yeah in the, In the in the private sector, it's because the you know the the framework hasn't been there. So that's a government problem of of taxes and regulations being too high, Uh, and also inconsistent and constant chopping and changing in the tax regime um, is not helpful so not just a question of lowering taxes it's also about simplifying them and a bit more predictability uh, in contrast for example to you know the windfall tax on energy companies constantly being tweaked and increased is 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 devastating investment in the north sea oil and gas sector So it's partly about getting the the right framework, which is a a problem of government. And in the public sector, of course, by definition, that's a problem of of government, and there are lots of things I could point to. For example, we've got fiscal rules that deter investment by the public sector, even investment that that could be a good thing. It's sometimes hard to get past the treasury. And we're seeing that with the roofs in, in schools and other public sector buildings being a good example of something where maybe something should have been done earlier.
2: You mentioned tax and taxes, tax rates going in the wrong direction, which they obviously are, and they're heading to levels that the UK find very hard to sustain as a percentage of GDP in the past. But it's hard to see what the choice is with an ageing population and net zero and all the other various obligations that fall upon the state and the things people expect from the state now, which seems to be more and more and more they expect the state to be involved in almost everything. With that dynamic, it's sort of hard to see how the tax regime could go in the other direction. However much the likes of us may think it should.
4: No, I'm sympathetic to that point, and I certainly think tax revenues uh, need to to rise in order to to fund the public services that we that we want, particularly as you say, with a an aging population and and, and other increasing demands. But that's not the same as saying that tax rates need to go up. I and mean, that, that's a, a mistake that I think a lot of other commentators you know, are sort of the orthodox commentators tend to make is the only way to increase tax revenues is to raise tax rates. Um, Whereas, of course, if you can get a a bigger economy through a combination of mainly supply-side reforms, but also a few judicious tax cuts that improve the supply-side performance of the economy, you can actually end up with a bigger economy, uh, a bigger pie to tax, if you like, bigger tax base, and therefore end up with, with more revenue. So I think the mistake a lot of people make is to assume that the only way to increase tax revenues is to raise the tax rates on individuals or companies. And we know that often doesn't actually yeah. work.
2: Which, oh, well, we know it doesn't work. We only have to look at the Scottish revenues from um, income tax. So which taxes would you cut, Julian, to improve the supply side?
4: Hmm. Well, yeah, again, that's a very good question. I think one of the problems over the last few years, and I think maybe this was particularly a problem in the Tory leadership campaign last year, was that there was sort of a competition to announce the the biggest cuts in in taxes without particularly thinking about which taxes to cut and and why. And I certainly think at the moment we should focus on tax cuts that would boost the supply side performance of the economy rather than just stimulating demand. But it's not difficult to think of examples there. I mean, corporation taxes is one, sorting out investment allowances and Getting rid of the windfall tax on the energy sector would be another. As far as personal taxes are concerned, I think the focus should be on tackling some of the distortions caused by very high marginal rates of tax. So not so much the average tax rate, but the fact that as some people move up just a little bit in the income scale, they suddenly get hit with punitive taxes, which must be bad for uh, the incentive to work or to set up a, a company. So discouraging labour supply, it's deterring entrepreneurship. I'm sure are some smarter things you could do within the income tax system in particular to make sure that you know, work does pay and that entrepreneurs get more of the reward for what they're doing.
2: Robert, when you look at the UK economy and you think about the things that could have been done uh, since Brexit to give us more of a chance of growth. Is there anything that you think we've really missed? One, a few big things we could have done that we haven't done. So I might still do. Yeah,
5: um, so obviously I, I agree with um, Julian on, on on marginal tax rates, um, and um, when we've done a lot of work on this, um, stamp duty in in both its forms um, is, a, is a, just a classic transaction tax, which is coming up the economy, um, both on houses and shares. Um, there are loads of points within the tax and and benefits system. Um, I mean, the big thing, which will not surprise anyone who's ever read anything I've written, is um, is housing. We have underbuilt by more than four million houses since the Second World War compared to are European competitors. And this is awful for people's life chances, but it's also awful for the economy because we we find it increasingly hard to match uh, the most talented people to the most productive jobs because they can't afford to move to where those jobs are. And in fact, we've we've moved rather than sort of accelerating house building, we've moved in the opposite direction um, because of resistance from effectively sort of the Tory, Tory grassroots. The other big thing is regulation. And again, this is an area where the sort of Brexit focus is actually slightly distracting. So... We've been doing an exercise at the CPS to look at the burden of regulation, and in, but in particular how regulation is made. And what you find is that a decreasing amount of our regulation towards the end of our EU membership came directly from Brussels. Now, that may be a statistical trick because Brussels stopped relying on directives, which you need to do. Domestic impact assessments for and started relying more on regulations, which were sort of transposed directly into member states' law without um, anyone needing to do any any numbers. But but broadly speaking, this focus on retained EU law. I mean, actually, there's only one government department which has a full list of all of the regulations it imposes on the economy and on businesses and on consumers. There is no attention paid within Whitehall compared to the attention paid to spending within Whitehall is astronomically more significant than the attention to pay to the impact of regulation. There are regulatory impact assessments, but they are basically filled out by the most junior person in the office and once the decision has already been made. There's none of the sort of institutional resistance to regulating that there is to, to spending. There's no equivalent of the Treasury putting its foot down. And indeed, both politicians and the public seem to constantly demand extra regulations. You know, the cry is always, something must be done. So I think, um, you know, Brexit is really a, a, a wonderful opportunity to take stock and try and do something, things differently, not in a sort of bonfire of the regulations kind of way, but just in it like being a lot more strategic and surgical and analytical about the impact the decisions government is making and the impacts they have on businesses and, and consumers. Uh, and that's something we really are only in the pitholes of, I think.
2: And How would that happen? That sounds expensive, boring, the kind of thing people aren't going to notice. I. I mean, I think you sound absolutely right. <laughs> I just cannot see how that would happen.
5: Well, well, broadly, there is a problem, and this ties in with what Julian was saying. The problem is that the most pro-growth things you can do in this country are often among the least popular and vice versa. So if you look at the, if you look at the tax regime, as you know, taxes on investment and on business are the worst for growth, according to quite a lot of modelling that's been done, and which we cited in most papers, but they're enormously popular. That's why corporation tax went up, because it was the easiest way of getting money rather than hitting people directly. The most economically progressive tax system in this country would be basically to have a, a very, very, well, not even just an increased VAT, to have a, a much more broadly based sales tax, a VAT, with all the exemptions stripped out, and then to compensate people for the losses in other ways. But you know, the politician who stands up and says, hey, I'm going to put VAT on children's clothes and your heating bills, is not going to have a job for, for very long. And house building would be another example of that. I think you know, a large part of the problem is we just don't want it enough.
2: We just don't want what enough.
5: Growth. And this, is, this ties in with the ageing population. The number of people over 60s and who own their own homes outright is extraordinary. Home it, open, absolutely home
2: and the, the cohort yeah. who own their houses outright and have a defined benefit pension to pay the cost on those houses yeah. is yeah. a really interesting dynamic because it's an experience that younger yeah. generations They're... don't have and never will have.
5: There is a huge and enormously electorally powerful cohort because of the the, the rate at which they vote, who are essentially immune from economic pressure. <laughs> like a lot of pe- these people are the people who delivered Brexit in the first place, because contrary to the quote you gave earlier, it's not they didn't read the warnings about how this would devastate the economy. It's just that they were going to be fine, basically, whatever happened. So they could afford to take the risk. And, which, of and course, likewise, is why
2: the wealth tax is so popular among younger voters.
5: Yes, uh, yes and so very unpopular among older ones.
2: Although, of course, as you said earlier, there are so many wealth taxes already. Both of those stamp duties are wealth taxes, but unrecognised as such. Yes, as I mean we
5: actually, we, we actually take more taxes from property than, than most other other countries. It's just we do it in a very, very ineffective and inefficient way. I mean, council taxes—you know—I think 1991 was is based on the sort of weird extrapolation of values back then. It's—I mean, yeah, it is really right for a, for an upgrade. But again, if you, if you wanted to go near it, you'd be a very brave man or woman.
2: Yeah, I've taken us off on a tangent, haven't I? Sorry. Um, Robert, tell me Always happy
5: to talk about housing
2: <laughs> Well, I'm going to ask you about housing again What's the simplest thing that we could do because we like to keep things very simple on this podcast What's the simplest thing that we could do to transform our problem with house building?
5: In the short term, um, reinstate the housing targets I mean, we were actually building a fairly decent clip before uh, that um, In the medium term, find a better way to compensate communities about housing to, and to get their consent to deliver infrastructure uh, more quickly
2: How would that work?
5: Well, at the moment, I'm sorry, again, it's going off on a bit of a tangent. But no, we love moment, a tangent. You, this is a good tangent. I like this tangent. If you as a community approve housing, it generally means that your local council will get a payment at some point which it will theoretically use to deliver all the goodies that were promised but in practice it may not and so the houses will appear before the roundabout before the gp surgery if you can flip that on its head and actually put the infrastructure in first and give people the goodies then the resistance does go away i mean it's striking at the local elections one of the areas where the tories did best is the west midlands which they basically turned into a building site but because it's you know that building site is for hs2 and because they're going to get a high-speed railway and they can sort of see the progress being made they can see housing going up they can see their communities getting better and their economy getting more dynamic they're you know they're actually quite happy with that idea
2: i didn't feel like that when i was watching the edinburgh trams go up not (laughs) at (laughs) all is there anything else that either of you would like to add to to the brexit conversation about things that uh, have gone well or have gone badly that we've missed out anything we've missed julian that's important to this conversation
4: well in the interest of balance i think one thing that has gone badly is it's clearly contributed to the Political uncertainty in the country over the last few years, both by distracting politicians and the wider Whitehall and Westminster establishment from other problems, but but also the the way that we've had this sort of churn of of prime ministers and and, and other senior figures, partly related to to the fallout of Brexit, is yet another factor preventing us from making big long term decisions, the, the difficult decisions that might be politically unpopular, but are the right thing to do. So I think one additional headwind to the economy from Brexit is simply that sort of general climate of of, of political uncertainty that's undoubtedly fostered. I don't think it needed to have been like this. If we'd had a proper plan for Brexit and people are more committed to deliver it from day one, then we could have avoided this. But. That uncertainty has undoubtedly held back some business investment and also made policy making in Whitehall more difficult than it would otherwise have. Although, what
2: it might also have done is something that John and I, John Stapek and I write about all the time, which has made UK assets and particularly UK listed equities phenomenally cheap. You know, the rising of the risk premium there is something that global investors are now beginning to, to notice. So, that may be something that, that turns around over the next few years.
4: Oh, I'd, I'd certainly agree with that. I mean, particularly now we've got. Data showing that Brexit Britain wasn't, in fact, the outlier that people assumed it was, then we're already starting to see a turn in investment sentiment, I think, towards the UK, um, which should be very positive over the next yeah. few I mean, years. I, I've, making argument Sorry, that, so, um, I've been making, making the argument that
5: actually um, the UK is, is arguably one of the most stable uh, of the G7 countries. It's not going to be the fastest growing. But when you look at the, what could happen in the US elections, when you look at the rise of the F.D. in Germany, when you look at what happens when Macron goes in in France? Um, you know th- there are there are clearly a lot of other places that are a lot more politically risky now than a, a country uh, run by you know run by Rishi Sunak and potentially about to be run by Keir Starmer.
2: So here we are, stable, reasonable growth doesn't seem so bad. Uh, do you think Julian and Robert that in ten years, maybe even twenty years, people will think about Brexit positively, negatively, or have forgotten all about it?
4: Well, I think there will be some diehards at both extremes who either think it's been the best thing ever or, or a complete and utter disaster. But unless that really shows through in the lives of, of ordinary people, I think it, it, it may well be for, forgotten uh, to some degree. What would be interesting is if there's ever anybody you know, in a serious position of power who would want to hold another referendum on this. I know there are lots of calls for another referendum sooner rather than later, but I think we were sold this on the basis that it was a once-in-a-generation vote. And I also think it's only fair to give the the pro-Brexit side more time to deliver on the potential benefits. But assuming there isn't another referendum, then I think you're you're probably right. Now, some of us will be continue to be obsessed about it. But for most people, it won't have much impact on their day-to-day lives anymore.
2: Robert, entirely forgotten?
4: I, I don't think so. I mean, M- Mervyn King has,
5: has said that if you look at the sort of 50-year chart of British GDP growth, um, you know, the inflection points are 1979 and 2008. And... This was a few years ago, but his view was that 2008 would remain the inflection point rather than 2016 or 2019, if you take into account when. And I think he's probably right on that. So I was looking at some of the polling data and talking to some some people who, who do this stuff. Party affiliation has now recovered. So in the years from 2016 till essentially 2019, 2020, people identified more as a Lever or Remainer than as Tory or Labour. And that has changed, but it hasn't so much changed on the Remain side. Because, I mean, you know, Brexiteers, A, they got what they wanted, and B, some of them are slightly embarrassed about that now because it's not perceived to have gone that well. Uh, whereas there are still quite a lot of people on the Leave side for whom Remain is, not you know, the people wearing, waving EU flags at the last night of the proms the other night. They are like the Brexiteers. They're the guys who care about this, and they're going to try and keep it alive. So I don't think it will be uh, entirely forgotten. I think it will still be quite contentious. But I think uh, as a live issue, as we drift further apart, it will become... Uh, harder to knit the two back together.
2: Robert, Gillian, thank you very much.
1: The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the US and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female
0: president.
1: And then you have China.
2: Man, do you think you'll have forgotten Brexit in 20 years? I mean, not after the first that everyone made.
3: <laughs> but other than that, I don't think, I don't, I'm not sure that uh, it will matter that much um, economically. Um, and I, I, I mean, it's good, it is a good question. And actually, and I do sort of think it comes back to that, like not after the first everyone's made. Mm, it's interesting, it depends isn't on who it? gets to write history books about this.
2: Yeah, and when I think about it, I think that the major downside to Brexit so far, um, and obviously, as we discussed in, in, in that conversation, of course, there's impacts, of course, there's downsides, there's all the frictions, there's the loss of trade with the EU, there's a lot of pain for individual businesses, etc. But when I think about it, that the main thing, is again something we picked up in, in the conversation, is stability. You know, one of the things you really need if you want to go for growth, which everyone seems to want to do at the moment, is a sense that you have a political stability in particular, that your institutions are strong, that your political environment is strong. You Remember the great... Uh, um, Adam Smith quote about there being a lot of ruin in a nation, the point being that you can do an awful lot to a country and it can be fine as long as your institutions are strong and your politics are stable. And, of course, what we've now done is run through, I can't even remember how many prime ministers, in a very short period as a direct result of constantly ongoing... John thinks it's four, by the way. Four, uh, times. he's holding <laughs> up fingers at me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a result of constant rouse about Brexit. And that, to me, so far has been the thing that has that has caused... Some of our problems, and that's possibly why I think Julian says in, in the conversation why there's this discount on U- UK assets and a lack of investment into the UK, etc. But you know, this is very short term, and mm, yeah. it's not just us. There's political instability everywhere, and uh, you know, you can't blame political instability in, in European countries on Brexit, or maybe you can. I don't know, but uh, but let's not. Um, so we can pull that stability back.
3: Yeah, I mean, so I, I don't. I think that, but look, part of the problem is that people are all. We're very impatient. We kind of expect stuff to happen overnight. Um, And obviously, one of the... you know Brexit was always going to be a tricky process. And then amplify that by the fact that the people who actually suggested the referendum in the first place and the people who were running the country throughout the process didn't want to do it, you know, kind of made it trickier as well. And I think the fact that actually the British institutions actually stood up, really surprisingly well and came out of it um, quite impressively we didn't actually end up reversing the referendum which has happened in other countries on certain occasions and also could have happened here Um, I think everyone got a much better sense of where responsibility and sovereignty actually lies in the country and it wasn't actually that far away from where most people thought it was Um, and I, I think that I, I don't I, I struggle to um view it as being a failure from that point of view. You know, we've we've come through it, it got done, it was messy, it was bumpy. There hasn't been an epic depression, there hasn't been anything other than a lot of embarrassment. You know, kind of embarrassment because everyone's standing up in front of their pals kinda of high level kind of conferences and saying, no, I'm so sorry my country voted the wrong way. But mm. other
2: than that, that's it. Yeah, and we get we can recover from that too. And yeah. maybe if everyone would just, you know, accept the result and stop going on about it. Remember how everyone kept telling the Scots to just accept the result of the referendum and just shut up and get on with the day job? Aye, it's time to saw... say that to politicians here. <laughs> yeah. Shut up, get on with the day job. Aye. Right? You know, if yes. we can say that to Nicola Sturgeon, I think we can say that to our, our Westminster politicians to just get on with the day job. And the thing is, they know what the day job is, right? They want to go for growth. We talked about this a little with, with Robert and with Julian about what is it that we need to do. Well, we know what we need to do. We know we need to have a, a less complicated and lower tax regime. We we know we need to change the incentives inside our tax system. We know we need to deal with the regulation problem, as as Robert said. We know we need to stop faffing around with infrastructure and do it properly. We yeah. know we need better transport links. We know we need better Wi-Fi. We know we need to sort out our education problem and stop overproducing elites and start producing <laughs> people who can actually do something. Um, you know, we know all this stuff. It's not new news. And now we don't have Brussels to blame and we've got to stop raping Brexit. 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 We just need to get, get on with it. And that seems to be me to be the way we have to go. And one of the really depressing things that I can't remember who was said in the, in the conversation, that our problem here is we just don't want it enough. And we have a large part of the population that isn't interested in the kind of policies that we need to go for growth. And my fear, because, you know, I like to be optimistic and I'm definitely a half glass full person. Everyone knows that. Um <laughs> My fear is that it may be that the long-term dynamic of an aging population is non-stop risk aversion because we have too large a group of the population who have a full incentive to protect the status quo. Kind of, I mean, almost you and I at this point, you know, yeah. like, please don't make my health value go down. I want to retire. And please, please don't make the value of my pension go down. I really want to retire. Please let me hang on to my status quo. And then there's the generation above you and me. Of course, you feel that way more strongly. Mm. You're an increasingly large part of the population and crucially, increasingly large part of the voting population. And that might mean that economies such as ours and all European economies are automatically risk averse and therefore unable to go for growth. That's my big worry.
3: Oh, I yeah. Mean, Tell it, me it's okay.
2: I, I think that's a really
3: good point. It, the problem is it's quite a tricky one to measure. I mean, I'd be interested to see because if you know, for all the you know, we talk about older people being more you know conservative or uh, you know kind of wanting to keep that house price, whatever it is. Um, I also get the sense that the younger generation certainly comes across as being highly risk-averse mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, um, for want of a better word, socialist rather than entrepreneurial-minded. But I just wonder how much of this is really just perceptions of where we are in the current scale, um, kind of age-wise. Um, I don't. I, I don't know that it's about demographics as such. I think possibly it's more about the fact that we've gone through a long period, again, actually, I tend to bring everything back to 2008. And what happened in 2008 is that we didn't let the banking system collapse and allow the way that you we wanted the have,
2: banking system to collapse. Just to be clear, he wanted you to lose yeah, all your savings. Absolutely. That's John absolutely. for
3: you. Uh, and you know, rise from the ravages of the apocalypse to lead my people to <laughs> salvation. No, um, <laughs> no, it's, it's more. There's, but the way we kind of dealt with it seemed very uh, wishy washy. Even though you know, yeah, I mean, most bank shareholders would not think that they were treated um, in a with kid gloves. You know, most of them kind of lost all of their money, mm. but. I think it's that thing that comes down to They bailed out the banks and then suddenly everyone thought, well, wait (laughs) a minute, I need to get bailed out as well. And then, you know, we had various crises come along where the government got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, And then obviously the kind of, you know, pièce de résistance like COVID coming along and then we get locked down and suddenly the government's into absolutely everything and it's it's sort of seen as the, the cushion of last resort. Oh, that's really right, not, not a fast resort, fast resort. Yeah. First resort. Oh. So, I think it's got much more to do with that than to do with an aging population. We've had a long period of time where the role of the kind of state has been unquestionably increasing. And and I think, and Richie
2: Sinek yeah. was supposed to be a small state guy. Aye, yes, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean,
3: and the thing is, in relative terms, he probably is a small state guy compared to where the rest of the kind of or the majority of the kind of um, politicians are at the moment
2: no one's a small state guy John you know what we're doomed <laughs> thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money we'll be back next week in the meantime if you like us share, rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts this episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset-Webb. It was produced by Summer Sardi. Additional editing by Blake Maple. Special thanks, of course, to Robert Colville, Julian Jessup, and to John Stepek. Be sure to sign up for John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. Link in the show notes. You won't regret it. Because he's always right.